Warning, the following podcast contains foul language, sexual themes, and all sorts of other fun stuff. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, uh, gentle warning. I don't know why my audio sounds like I am recording from inside of a tin can for the entirety of this episode. Um, I've done everything I can to noise correct and make it sound like I am not recording from inside of a tin can. I promise I am inside my own home. I am not currently on the run, hiding out in a shipping container, trying to record an episode of a podcast that eight people will listen to. Um, But I hope you enjoy the episode anyway, and next time I will make sure to fix it before I record. Thank you. Okay, so I guess important note, because as Sarah just pointed out, uh, nobody knows that I'm actually, well, I mean, everyone knows we got engaged, and I guess probably anyone listening knows we're married. But Steffi and I got married. Yay! I'm glad that's how you decided to open the episode. Like, no cold open. By the way, guys, we're married. Yeah, so we're married. Um, but see, that's an important lead-in. Okay. Because we just moved to Kansas City. I am now recording in my new home office that is full of basically nothing right now. <laughs> <laughs> My desk won't even be here for like two weeks. Um, but I have a very nice wife. And yeah. one of her first priorities when we got here was to get me into laser treatments to remove Aww, my hair. That's so exciting. So we wanted to do full body, but it was going to cost like 600 a month. Mm-hmm. So we did not do that because I was like, that's too much money. Yes. So we're, I'm just doing my face, my butt, and then they also gave me a promo, so I did my lower back. So face, butt, lower back, because I can shave my chest. It's yeah. re- relatively easy. Yeah. Um, and we can just add on more later. Yeah. So last week, I have my first session. Now, yeah, I've had I... some laser treatment before. I received updates from her as it was going on because she could hear you. Oh, no. Okay. Go on. (laughs) So, I have had laser treatment before. It was a completely different type of laser treatment than this one. They're like, it's not supposed to hurt that much. It'll be fine. But I go in and the nurse is looking at my face and she's like, look, you have really dark hair follicles. Um, This is going to be a little spicy. Yep. She said some of these spots are going to get a little spicy, especially the chin and your lips. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So she goes to do it. And look, I'm expecting a sting. Yeah. I lit, I have a high pain tolerance. I believe you. I literally screamed (laughs) from pain. The people in the lobby, including my wife. Heard me screaming (laughs) because I was not prepared. They gave me these little, like, they're like tanning booth goggles, (laughs) but they're like steel and they don't have any opening. It feels like you're wearing like lead eye protection from UV rays. (laughs) When I took them off from being like suction cupped to my eyelids, after all this was said and done, I just felt tears <laughs> leaking 
down my face. Apparently, because some of the parts, I barely felt anything. But then every, like, 15 to 30 seconds, she would get to a section that was really bad. And so they would just hear me going, I'm going to throw up. (laughs) When I asked if you had an intro in mind and you were like, yeah, I I could not have expected. Literally, we left and I felt like I was on the verge of tears for a good, like, hour. And I was, one of the first things I said was, this is going to make a great story for the podcast. <laughs> Your pain is so funny. I'm glad. <laughs> okay, I went in today. That was my appointment today to do my butt because we only did my face last time. Yeah. So, how's your butt feeling? Didn't hurt. Well, I mean... It is pretty fleshy. I was just like, yeah, no, this is... The way I described the pain on the parts of my face was it's like, imagine you're getting slapped. Yes. But it's condensed into a little, like, (laughs) quarter-sized spot. Yeah. And there's needles on it. And so you're just getting full force slapped in this really tiny location with needles. <laughs> I imagine that's it's probably a similar technology to how it feels to like get a tattoo removed. Because I mean, I have tattoos, and like that's whatever. But get, I know getting them removed is like awful pain. If I didn't have to do this, I wouldn't. I would rather break my yeah. birth plate again. Oh. That's, wow. Well, you know. I mean, at least your butt's okay. <laughs> yeah, my butt's gonna, fine. We are going to be sitting for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Emmy is not just laying on the floor recording on her stomach. Uh, for those of you who aren't, like, aware of our appearances, we are both plus-size people. Um, and today at work, this other girl that I work with, who is uh, also um, a bit pudgy, she and I bumped into each other and we started laughing really loud and she just goes, that impact was so squishy. Because <laughs> it was literally like our asses like hit each other and just like bounced. It was, um, it was an experience. No one had to call HR though, so it's okay. <laughs> Bouncy ass collision. Ash- ass- <laughs> Collision <laughs> set to the tune of Collide by Howie Day. <laughs> well, I mean, welcome back. Um, my name is Sarah. That's Emmy. What year is it? <laughs> 2032? I mean, honestly, it kind of feels like it's been that fucking long, but it's actually 2022, and we're not reading Twilight. We are not reading Twilight, nor are we reading. The book, which shall not be named, by the author that is not the one who wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) We had such a bad experience with those books that we stopped recording for almost a year. (laughs) Yeah, that was... We had no motivation to record anything. And then also, just like, the past, like, however many months have just been, like, awful mental health-wise. And, like, they've been busy. I mean, I had to, like, get ordained... Which was just a whole thing. Get us married. You had to marry us. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I 
for also for those of you who don't know, I actually performed Emmy and Steffi's wedding in the backyard of Emmy's mom's house in our pajamas. I was wearing Kirby pajamas. We were wearing cactus pajamas. Yes. I gave, cactus. <laughs> I gave them a fake marriage license that has rainbows and one cactus on it. Cactus. I honestly would have been disappointed if there wasn't a cactus. I, I know, was expecting I, a cactus. When I was making it, I was extremely, because I made it. I like designed it online and then I, I paid to have it printed off at Walgreens. And then I bought a frame to put it in and everything. And when I was designing it, I was like, I put the cactus there, took it off. Put the cactus there, took it off. Put, I kept I kept just like put and being like, is this going to be like, I my biggest thing was, is this joke going to have longevity? Like, are they going to be able to look at this years from now and be like, haha, there's a cactus. <laughs> look, we got married in pajamas. They have cactuses on them. I mean. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's pretty appropriate. Are you guys going to get marriage tattoos that are cactuses? I, no, I don't want to tattoo cactus. Cat, 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 cactus tattoo. Cactus tattoo? I'll get one for you. <laughs> and it'll just say Emmy and Steffi underneath it. Beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're, uh, you know, alive. I hope all of you are too. It's been a hot minute, but we're back and we're going to read um, a really good book. In a minute. We're going to need a sentimental woman or man. Man or woman. Man or woman to come and pump us up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Thank you, Lizzo. (laughs) Uh, But no, we're actually reading, instead of reading a book that we remember as being really bad from our teenage years, we're now going to read a book that we remember as being really good from our teenage years and that I own at least seven copies of. So, and then we're going to read more bad books. (laughs) Yeah. And then we're going to read more bad books. And then maybe after we read those books, maybe we'll revisit the series if we're really feeling interested, but probably not. Um, It will probably just be the first book. If anyone wants to read the second book after we finish, maybe I'll do like a little book club on the side and we can all read it together and it'll be very fun. But so the book that we're reading is Warm Bodies by Isaac Marion. Um, it was famously turned into a movie back in 2013, starring Nicholas Holt and Teresa Palmer. It really played into the uh, romantic comedy elements of the story, that being the story of a zombie who is brought back to life by falling in love. We are all familiar with the concept. Um, it did really well. Uh, but also the movie is nothing like the book. The, the movie is good and the book are good. They are nothing like each other. <laughs> There is a Romeo and Juliet parallel, and that is about where the similarities stop. There's a zombie. There is a zombie, and the book is funny. Like, there are definitely moments where I was laughing while reading it. I mean, I would say the whole thing's kind of dark humor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's not funny in the same way a romantic comedy is funny. It's funny in the way that, like, millennial and Gen Z humor is funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very like, I, it's, if this, if this book came out this year, it, like, I think it would have, I mean, I know it was a bestseller when it came out, but like, it would be like insanely popular today. Oh yeah. This book is just becoming ever more appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. 
this book has a lot to say on the philosophy of like life and death and what it really means to be human and I feel like it also has a lot to say about just like society and stuff which we'll get into obviously as we as we read it um it's not a very long book uh it's only like 300 something pages <laughs> it's not even 300 pages it is 240 something pages but it's pretty dense as far as like details and story go. So we'll definitely get at least three or four episodes out of it. I'm very excited. Yes. <laughs> and the fun part here is you've read it a lot. I have. I read it once in high school. Uh-huh. And so I'm basically going in like I have a very basic understanding of the concept and themes just because I already knew what they were. Yeah. And that's basically it <laughs> yeah it's not it's 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 an in, it's a an interesting take on like what we've done before whereas like both maximum ride and twilight were books that i had read quite a bit but when i was way younger uh this is a book that i have read and reread countless times over the years because it's a fast read like it's a really good book and it's goes by really fast and i mean obviously it's it's my favorite book so i have a lot of good things to say about it <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next next time we decide to read a good book, we'll read, like, I don't know, Gideon the Ninth or something. Gideon. <laughs> That'll finally get you to read it. Yeah, honestly, you and my buddy Drew are just, like, nonstop trying to get me to read Gideon the Ninth. And it's not that I don't want to. I read the first 50 pages. I just, I got stuck. Third book comes out next month. I know. Drew was trying to get me to find him an arc because I until recently still had access to my old Edelweiss account which for those of you who are not American booksellers that it's an online like trading system for getting advanced reader copies of books and you can only have an account on there if you have a bookseller email aka you work for a bookstore and have an email address associated to that bookstore um but they recently terminated my email address. <laughs> I mean, I haven't worked there in over six years. So, like, I understand, I guess. It's about time. <laughs> but I, uh, unfortunately, was not able to get an arc of Nona the Ninth. I'm sorry. I did find a copy online for about $700. <laughs> I've been trying to win art contests. Oh, yeah. Drew retweeted one, the, retweeted one the other day and was like, hey, if you give me this, maybe I can continue to try to get my friend Sarah to read it. Uh, anyway, shall we begin our discussion of Warm Bodies? Our intro is only 14 minutes long, so I mean, we could go longer. What are your feelings about warm bodies? (laughs) It's so good. I prefer cooler bodies. No, shut up. So before we even dive into the content of the book, I want to start the way we used to start every single one of these episodes, which is, or at least the first episode of a book, which is I want to read you the quotes from the beginning of the book. Um, so the first quote is from Gilgamesh, a verse narrative, which is basically just a new translation of the Gilgamesh myth. Um, and it goes, you have known, O Gilgamesh, what interests me to drink from the well of immortality, which means to make the dead rise from their graves and the prisoners from their cells. 
the sinners from their sins. I think love's kiss kills our heart of flesh. It is the only way to eternal life, which should be unbearable if lived among the dying flowers and the shrieking farewells of the overstretched arms of our spoiled hopes. Yeah. And the sec the second quote um, is from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the original translation. Tablet 2, lines 147, 153, 154, 278, and 279. And it goes something like this. It's an ellipsis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, humorously enough, Isaac Marion chose one of the many lines within the epic that is just dot dot dot. <sighs> Which will definitely be relevant as we go through the book itself. Um, but that brings us to the first chapter. Any commentary before we begin? There are no traditional chapters. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. There's just, like, occasionally you'll come to a page break and there's an intricate drawing of a thing. Of and a then, human anatomy. Yes, and that's that's how you know it's the next chapter. Uh, yeah, it doesn't go like chapter one, two, three. It's basically like I was like, oh, it's the next chapter. I'm going to name this chapter three. I could have named it like chapter spleen if I really wanted to. <laughs> but I figured it would be easier to denote that it was the first chapter. Yeah, please don't, please don't use uh, anatomy. I'm not, a, I'm not great at anatomy. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'll, I'll make sure I don't do that. So, um, <clears throat> oh. oh, no, I like that they... Uh, it's Gilgamesh. Yeah. Because for those who may not be aware, Gilgamesh is considered to be the oldest human story. And so the book starting is basically like, look at this concept of immortality being a curse, even all the way back in the first recorded stories that we were telling. Yes. I love drawing that parallel between like ancient people and their like views and perspectives on the universe and the way it's like, yeah, they got it. <laughs> <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> uh, so uh, chapter one, the book opens with R, a zombie and the main character describing his state of undeadness. He has not fallen into as deep decay as some of the other zombies he knows and is dressed relatively well in a shirt and tie. He doesn't remember his name, only that he thinks it begins with an R, and he has a friend who also doesn't have a name but is called M. The loss of his name is something that troubles R. He says he mourns the loss of his name more than the memories of his life. Romeo Mercutio. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Don't give it away. It's, <laughs> it's I, I will say, uh, they ham up the Romeo and Juliet references a lot in the movie, but in the book, it's pretty much just names and then, like, circumstances. Yeah. It's not, not really a whole lot else. It's not just a Romeo and Juliet retelling with zombies. Um, so, I mean, I mean, like, there's... What is there to say? This is the first hint we get of our ruminating on, like, what it means to be alive. Like, 
he feels more dead knowing that he cannot remember his own name than the fact that he doesn't remember anything about his human life. Which, you know, I mean, it makes sense. We, we associate so much with just our own name of so much of who we are. Yeah. That the memories mean less. Oh, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> R describes the airport where he and his fellow undead live, saying they've likely been there for a while. One day while R rides the escalators, which only turn on every now and then as the airport is largely without electricity. Um, M approaches him, inviting him to go on a hunting trip to the nearby city. R also says that zombies can and do regularly die. So they'll just be, like, walking down the hallways and they'll just, like, see the corpses of the undead just, like, laying around. And the way he describes it in the book is less like they, like, tragically died and more like they just kind of stopped moving. I imagine it's a lot more like a car running out of gas. Yeah. They just eventually sputter out and stop. Yes. And, okay, this is this is one of my early favorite things because they literally ride escalators for fun. Yeah. It is a fun activity and I'm in an airport. <laughs> and I'm like, think of the concept of riding an escalator in an airport now. Yeah. It's stressful. I hate, I hate it. It's awful. Nobody wants to do it. You just want to get to the terminal. Juxtapose that with the fact that now that they're undead, he's like, this is my source of enjoyment and fulfillment. It's like, I feel like, in a way, it's like the rumbling and the motion of the escalators is like the only like stimulation that they have. Because they, like, live in this airport, which you'll find ha- is, like, basically their society. And they've got nothing else to do other than just walk around, occasionally go out and get food, come back, and go back to walking around. And grown. <laughs> and grown. They've grown a lot. <laughs> and one of the things that's so interesting to me is, so R doesn't remember his name. R doesn't have any memories. But... R is extremely well-spoken in yes. thought. Yeah. And, and he's extremely well-spoken verbally even for a zombie. He is yes. unusually well-spoken. But he has memories mm-hmm. of how the... It's very similar to uh, how you see amnesia portrayed yes. in media where they just forget completely who they are, but they still have all... The things they need to function in the world and all their yeah. knowledge of the world though we see that he's lost some of it throughout this because like at one point he is at a car he, it takes him a while to remember how to turn keys to turn on a car yeah. but it's like he retains a lot of it it is really weird like why would you retain just these very basic concepts of survival in a world where you no longer need them as opposed to the memories of who you are. <laughs> yeah. There's actually two quotes, and I just pulled them up, uh, where he talks about him, his, like, desire to speak and his, like, eloquence. Uh, so the first is, I want to change my punctuation. I long for exclamation marks, but I'm drowning in ellipses. Like, he cannot, like, he physically cannot, like, emphasize his words enough for them to, like, feel meaningful um 
despite how much he really wants to. And the second one is, in my mind, I am eloquent. I can climb intricate scaffolds of words to reach the highest cathedral ceilings and paint my thoughts. But when I open my mouth, everything collapses. It's a... And correct me if I'm wrong, the the ellipses in Gilgamesh are missing lines. Yes. That we just no longer have. Yes. And that's why it's because, like, he's stuck with so many breaks and ellipses in his words that are just disconnected thoughts he cannot communicate to anyone. Yes. And that's kind of the whole point is how much is just lost in the community in the attempt to communicate yeah it's like it's so amazing to me because like this first chapter is what like 10 pages long maybe but like you get the first hints of like r is really desperate to be alive he doesn't really like he he kind of like exists he the opening line of the book is like i'm dead but it's not so bad but you can still already see like no honey it is so bad all right, so R, M, and a bunch of various other undead travel to the city and kill a group of humans hiding in a building. R attacks one and debates leaving the man's brain uneaten because that would mean the man would rise from the dead and he might feel a little less bad, but he winds up eating the brain anyway because when a zombie consumes someone's brain, they get flashes of visions from the person's life, which R enjoys. R says he is more sensitive than the average zombie and winds up regretting his meals. And I have to wonder if this is like a chicken and egg situation where it's like, did he become sensitive because he ate so many brains and now is like so full of all of the like thoughts and memories of all these people? Or was he already sensitive and eating the brains like made it worse? Well, I do have a theory. Okay. Uh, But it comes in more later when he talks about the concept of wanting to be alive okay so i'll wait for that we can always come back to it um so yeah this like concept of like being able to experience the thoughts and memories of the the people whose brains you eat like put a pin in that remember that for a later date (laughs) it's very important it is Um, so the hunting party takes the remaining bodies back to the airport and R breaks away from the group to go ponder the scenery outside from the moving sidewalks. He vaguely remembers how busy he was when he was alive. R meets a lady zombie who happens to be wearing a name tag, but zombies can't read so they don't know what it says, uh, which frustrates him a lot because he's like, no, you have a name. It's right there. It's on your body and we can't read it. So like, therefore it may as well not exist. Um, they hold hands and experience what remains of love. R's new girlfriend takes him to what passes for undead church and the ancient undead called bonies because that's basically all that's left of them. Uh, and they join the two in marriage. The following day, the bonies give R and his wife two kid zombies to look after. So, first of all, on the way back from the hunt... Uh, R's being all depressy about the fact that he just ate somebody. Yeah. And M comes over to comfort him. And one of the things I like about it is because he's like, M makes fun of him for it. Yeah. A lot he says for how sensitive he is. Doesn't he call him a pussy? Oh, no, he calls him a girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> says he, he likes to hold his hair up like pigtails and call him a girl. Ah, uh, yes. Um, But sometimes he knows that it's not appropriate. So he'll just come over. And just, like, 
put his hand on him or watch him. And I'm like, you know what I love about it is it shows that one of two things is happening. Either one, there is still some semblance of empathy yeah, that all of these undead are capable of. Or two, all and it happens a lot where R is talking about things M does, and he's like, I'm assuming it's this. And it's all just assumption because he can't actually communicate with him. So it's yeah. only based on what he can assume M is trying to communicate or do. And it's like, yeah, isn't that what we're doing all the time? We should also say that amongst the zombies r is the most verbose he has used up to like four syllables at a time m is the second most verbose and he can't even do three so like there there's really like absolutely no verbal communication going on between these zombies which i really enjoy as a person who loves to like interpret the implications of like nonverbal communication um because it's really meaningful it's oh yeah because it's when you're left with literally no words going back and forth there's nothing to muddy it exactly so i i really like i just I'm going to say, I just love this a lot because just like so much of what Isaac Marion does is just like, he's, he's like peppering such like deep meaning. And like the message of the book is like so deeply ham fisted while at the same time, not feeling like it's being shoved in your face at every given turn. It's, it's really, really nice. It's like every single sentence is about the deeper meaning of the book without yes. it feeling painful to read oh yeah absolutely there is a really uh vivid scene where they i said that they have undead church right and that's where he like marries his wife and it's like a really haunting visage because you just have all of these zombies just standing around like vaguely swaying and groaning and then the bonies are these horrific monstrosities they're like 10 feet tall they're super like like long and just like gross and they're basically just bone and they they, they do not have vocal cords. So the sound that comes out of them is basically just wind. And it's, and they're the ones who are like leading the worship, quote unquote. And it's so haunting to think about because like, can you imagine seeing that? Oh my God. Well, also like they can't communicate what it is they're worshiping. Yeah. This is purely, it's up to any individual there what it is they're actually thinking about yeah and who knows if like most of them even understand the concept of church because like we don't know the complex inner worlds of all of the other zombies because they can't talk so like we have no idea if any of them are anywhere near as like aware as R is about the world around them they could just be baser instinct at this point and we would have no idea and this gives me my first kind of thing of like the condition of humanity uh that i was thinking through is think about a long time ago in human history when we just didn't have much yeah how often did people just do things together with no idea why they were doing it because it was 
something to do with other people. Yeah, I mean, the largest structure from, like, surviving structure from the ancient civilizations was in Mahenjadaro um, in the Indus River Valley, and it's a bathhouse. Like, it's literally a place where people would go and bathe together because, like, they had nothing else. They, they conger, I don't want to say they had nothing else. That's oversimplification. But it's, like, it's literally just, like, that's what bring, brought them together as a society was, like, coming, congregating and coming to this bathhouse together. So, and, yeah. And here we see them living in an airport, the very image of a world that is almost overconnected and overrun with activity and stress. Yes. And at this point, it's basically just shambles. Yeah, and they're doing this weird ritual that means nothing just to do something with each other. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Also, the name thing. Yes. The name tag. There is no reason given how much knowledge they still, or at least R still has of the world, that he shouldn't be able to read it. Yeah. Meaning that we can clear, pretty clearly deduce already that this isn't something as simple as, oh, it's a virus that was made in a laboratory that made people like this. Yeah. It is very clearly something a lot more supernatural or like foundational to existence that has changed to make them unable to even recognize letters that by all rights they should understand yeah for sure would you like to go on to chapter two yes chapter two so r is ready to go on the hunt again but he thinks it's only been a few days which is a very short time considering that a lot of zombies survive for like weeks or longer at a time without eating yeah so the fact that he needs food again already is weird so he finds him in a cafeteria uh and M's surrounded by a gaggle of ladies of broads of broads he's surrounded by broads the broads he's been seeing and apparently he manages to attract them due to his better than average Diction, as R puts it, which is funny because at the same time, they disperse when R comes because he makes people uncomfortable and he's even more well-spoken than M is. Yeah. Um, he also knows that M refuses to marry anybody. So basically, M just likes playing the field and talking to women as M much as... As one can be in this situation. M is a slut. M is a slut. M, and good for him. M is the Emmett. M is the Emmett of this of story. this book. <laughs> and like, what troubles me so much is that R is kind of the Edward of this book, but R is so much cooler. Oh, R, R is a lot better than Edward. <laughs> R is so much better than Edward. So R thinks M is irritated with him because M shoves past him, but he's like, I don't, I don't know. That could just be zombie stuff because we don't really have coordination. Yeah. Once, he may have just ag- bumped into him on his way past, so he has no idea. Once again, this lack of words makes it so what the fuck? I don't know. 
<laughs> so M gathers the other hunters, but it's a really small group because basically nobody but R is hungry already. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's too hungry to give a fuck. He's like, nah, we going. So they go into the city and they're going deeper and deeper in than usual because it's becoming, humans are becoming really scarce. Um, and he says that he thinks they're just kind of become self-sufficient in their fortified stadiums when there's one nearby that he can see in the distance. So humans basically just all moved into these stadiums that they made into fortresses where yes. they live and grow things and somehow manage to survive. And they only come out really if, well, at this point to salvage but there's probably some people groups that have just managed to make it along and haven't died or Mm -hmm. maybe get kicked out i don't know um we haven't gotten that far (laughs) yeah we haven't gotten that far um but they do manage to find a group finally but it's one half their size and for zombies that's bad so m's like nah nah we gotta go back and r is like no i'm hungry and he gets real pissy. And then all the other zombies are like, ooh, what's this strong emotion? Let's yeah. follow him. <laughs> Basically, it seems like the way he's talked about so far is as soon as somebody has a desire to do something, it's really easy to get the other zombies to do it yeah. because there is no desire. So when he feels this strongly, he can basically get them to do anything. Yeah. So... They go into a damaged, slanting high-rise. Like, all the hallways are, like, zigzagging at an yeah. angle. So they're trying it's not to fall. Our, this is not very structurally sound. I think you should reconsider. Maybe consider going into the suburbs. Just a thought. <laughs> this is a bad plan all around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so R hears the voices of the people inside, and... Apparently he loves human voices, but nobody else gives a fuck. Yeah. And M calls it a sick fetish. (laughs) Which is funny given some of the stuff we find out about M later. Oh yeah. M's got a lot of fetishes. He's a slut. (laughs) He's a slut. So anyway, they storm the room. There's a stream of gunfire. It's dark. The only light really is the flashes from the guns going off. And... By all rights, the zombies should die. There are three zombies to every one human. And they're like, this is being hugely outnumbered for us. But something about this situation is working in their favor. And R thinks it's because he's so motivated that they're going so much faster than usual. Yeah. Um, So most of the people in there seem to be like teens. And he spots one older person atop like a counter or a desk that he thinks is their leader. So he lunges for him, grabs him by the ankle, pulls him down, slams his head into the edge of the corner (laughs) or edge of the desk or table, whatever it is, bites his neck out and then just pries his hand (laughs) into the area where the guy's head hit the edge and pops it off so that he can eat the brain. It is so brutal. It is fucking hard to read. It is. That part. Oh, yeah. 
It's, so. I, as far as I remember, it is the most grotesque moment in the entire book. It's pretty fucking bad. Because he, like, yeah. he brutalizes this person. And it's not just a person. It's one of the main characters of the book. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's rough. Yeah. And it's very weird because it's, there's a very strong, we see him do this. And he talks at different times about the kind of remorse you feel for doing this to somebody. But it's like he doesn't... It's like there's two layers of feeling. He like he feels bad, but he doesn't feel it enough for him to weigh him down. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's like, I feel bad that I snuffed out a life, but also I am hungry. And that's what I got to do to eat. It's like fish got to swim. Zombies got to eat brains, you know? And it's, I think one of the most jarring things about that moment in particular is, you know that R is a zombie and you know he kills people. Like that's, that's the thing is like, you're literally inside the mind of a zombie who eats people. But up until this point, he has never been so like, like, brutal and aggressive about it you know he's he's just kind of been this like zombie soft boy like literally after the last uh hunt he threw up like he vomited because he felt so bad about what happened and so you kind of had this idea like oh he's sensitive oh he doesn't like hurting people and then come this like weird insane insatiable desire that he has at the beginning of this chapter and from then until now, it's just been, like, this build of just, like, him giving in to his baser instincts. And it's really hard to read. <laughs> but it's good. Like, it's it's amazing. It's, it's one of those, like, moments in the book where you have to kind of wrestle with the idea that, like, you're literally reading a book where the protagonist is a murderer who does not feel remorse. I mean, does feel remorse, but not really. <laughs> I think of it very much like reading a book with a protagonist whose only choice is to eat a living thing that isn't human. Yes. But still has sentience. And it's like, it's like you can, it's like when you read a vampire book. Yes. And they feed on humans and you're like, you can be a good person in general it's not your fault that yeah. you have to do this to, to keep on existing. Yeah. R, for me, feels very similar to, like, I relate to R in the way he feels about eating humans. It's the same way that I feel about eating cows. Yeah. <laughs> Where I'm like, oh, I feel so bad. Like, oh, my God. I, I hate imagining, like, cows anytime I'm, like, eating beef. But, like, I eat beef. Like, I, I mean, it's not, I know that I could physically survive without eating beef, but like in this economy, you want me to just like swear off meat products? I don't think so. And like, that's, that's about how I feel about eating meat. So I understand. Yeah. I, I very, I, I understand R very well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, go on. So. Here, R's mind is basically replaced by a clip show of memories belonging to the guy he just killed, whose name is Perry Kelvin. Perry! He's played by Dave Franco in the movie. Absolutely chef's kiss. (laughs) So the first one 
is a memory of Perry when he's nine and he's living in a rural, rural town. It's fenced off and the fence is meant to protect the residents from whatever is happening in the world. And he talked about it's like it's distant. It's at the coasts. We have no idea what it is. We just know something bad is happening to the point where they're fencing off an entire town. But life is still kind of relatively normal. He's riding his bike home from school. They just learned about George Washington. Then it cuts to a new memory. Perry's 11. And it's his birthday. His parents are trying to make it special, even though the economy's gotten really bad. Once again, we don't know why, but bad things happening in the world. So they're having pizza and then they're going to see one of the new zombie movies that's been become increasingly popular lately. Weird. Weird. <laughs> then we cut to a new memory where Perry's 15 and he's in another school, but this time it's in a stadium and the class is about salvaging. Gone are the days of learning about the first president of the United States. Now you learn how to salvage. Hey, listen, the first president of the United States uh, ripped the teeth out of the mouth of his slaves to make fake teeth for himself. So I'd rather learn about salvaging. You know who else would rather learn about salvaging? Who? A certain man from a certain game called Xenoblade Chronicles 2. A man named... Rex Look, begins with an R. Brand- R is Rex. <laughs> no, no, don't. This is not a conspiracy. Brandon has been playing Xenoblade uh, Chronicles three. Non-stop. Don't tell me about it. I'm not telling you anything about it, but he's been playing it nonstop for the past week. I don't want to hear any more about Xenoblade. I can't wait to play Xenoblade Chronicles three. <laughs> Anyways, class is about salvaging. He sees a pretty girl with eyes that are. Classic novels and poetry. He's so 15. (laughs) He's so 15, dude. (laughs) She introduces herself as Julie. Or if you want to, if you want to really have fun with it, Julie, (laughs) as you can constantly tell her to do the thing. Oh my God. We then cut to a new one and it's Perry kissing Julie's neck. As she whispers his name seductively. He asks if she wants to do it. She says yes. They make love. (laughs) Oh, stop. I almost ripped my headphones off of my head. But I did. We should put a content warning on this episode for that alone. I did pull an entire quote from this section. That's a great, it's, it's a great quote. It's fantastic. I want to be part of her. Not just inside her, but all around her. I want our rib cages to crack open and our hearts to migrate and merge. I want our cells to braid together like living thread. <gasps> Fucking beautiful. <laughs> Perfect description it's, of intimacy. Oh yeah, like I don't. Like, for anyone out there who's ever been like really in love with someone to the point where like. Not to be crass, but, like, fucking is not close enough. I am not close enough to you right now. I want I want our skulls to smash together and for us to become one person because I love you so fucking much. It's absolutely... 
I love the prose in this book. This book is like, I should have said like from the beginning that while this book is like a horror romance, like philosophy comedy kind of thing, it's beautiful. Like the way that that Marion writes is absolutely beautiful. Living in the mind of a zombie has never seemed so nice. Oh yeah. You, you're just like trapped inside your head all day with all of those beautiful thoughts that you are not able to speak. So, you know, that sucks. <laughs> So I have some thoughts on macabre okay, after reading this because I feel like there's a concept of macabre and it's like the scene before this when R is eating Perry yes. or assaulting him and eating him, that's macabre. Mm-hmm. But also this description of sex is <laughs> pretty macabre. I want to crack our rib cages open and merge our hearts. Yes. Like it's awesome, but it's, Reading it made me think, no, I don't like things that are macabre in a negative way. Like what R does to Perry. Yes. But I love it in this context. And I think there's something about how this concept of like the destruction of your of the body can be used for very positive, yeah, beautiful things and not just something grotesque and terrifying. There is definitely something to be said for the fact that, like, we as skin and bones are beautiful creatures and, like, using that as a narrative function is just, like, it can do you so good. It can... <laughs> do you good it can it can it really can like it can it gives you butterflies to just like think about it that way you know it's like i i don't know how best to put it other than it just it really helps you to like feel more connected and like i don't know one with like yourself and your soul and your insides to really like read about the way that what you are just on the inside like physically speaking is beautiful and we should be writing about it that way i love it love it next scene next scene next after, uh, after the love making next slideshow slide uh perry's riding a motorcycle down a city street with julie wrapped around him all smiling but he doesn't feel capable of sharing that smile with her anymore. Um, he talks about wanting to protect her, but he often fails to see a future with her. And not in the sense that we normally say, I don't see a future with this person. Yeah. But in a very literal, I can't see a future Yeah. way. Um, part of that, because his head hurts. Or does it? <laughs> this is a nice little bit of foreshadowing. Yes. And this is where Perry's thoughts end. We have another segment that's separated from the thoughts and from ours narrative. And it's kind of, the, it happens a few times it, whenever he's eating a brain where you have this part where it's like there's another voice in ours head that's neither the brain he's eating or his own normal narration Mm -hmm. telling him he needs to stop 
and he yeah. needs to come back to himself and breathe, even though the breath is useless. Yeah. It, um, you, so what this, and this, all of these like memory sequences occur over the course of about two or three pages. Um, it's not a super long detailed description. It's, it really like Marion did a very good job at like trimming it down to where we would be experiencing it over the course of a few seconds in the same way that R is. Cause he's just seeing these flashes. Right. And, but it does such a beautiful job of like illustrating the kind of person that Perry is because I wasn't joking. Perry is a main character in this book. He plays such an incredibly pivotal role in the book. And just because he's dead doesn't mean that we don't need to understand him and his complex inner world, you know? And it, you get to see from the beginning of him just being innocent and hopeful all the way down to him basically falling into a depression that he doesn't feel like he can ever get out of despite how loved he is by this other person which is i mean it's going to matter a lot more as the book goes on um, and it's really interesting to see because it doesn't take much it doesn't we see literally two to three pages give us a taste of perry's mm -hmm. entire personality or core core feelings and thoughts yeah and then you read Twilight. <laughs> I was just about to say, then you read, uh, what was it? Chapter 12, Carlisle of Twilight, where you get this long extended, like 20 page backstory on Carlisle and it still feels so heartless and empty. It's not all about the backstory. Yeah. It's about the choices the person's making. In the feelings yeah. they have. It's about getting the essence of who they are as a person. You get so many more vibes. We're like 20 pages into this book and we've been talking for an hour. Well, I mean, like 45 minutes. I was going to say, the for perspective, chapter two, I have an entire two pages of notes yeah. about and Google Docs on chapter two. Twilight <laughs> didn't have enough happen in a chapter Yeah, for me to summarize that much, despite how long the chapters yeah. were. Yeah, we got to the point <laughs> with Twilight where we were writing out three sentences about a 30-page chapter, because that's all that happens. It's just, there's so much slogging, and there's no slogging in this book. No, And the funny part is, it's like, look at Maximum Ride. The descriptions of a chapter in Maximum Ride were a lot longer because so much happened. But all of the things happening were so insane and disconnected yes. that it was like a process to get through. And whereas this, it's yeah. it's so wonderfully constructed that yeah. it just flows together. There's there's no slogging in this book. Maximum Ride could have used a little slogging. Could I'm have gonna, used a little slogging. Could have used a little slogging. So. So. R comes out of the memories and he wants to cry. He feels the stinging in his eyes. He talks about how it feels like there's, he's been sprayed with mace. Yeah. But he lacks any of the biological functions to actually form tears. And it is the first time he's felt actual pain since dying. Just that physical discomfort of 
the feeling of needing to cry is the first time he's felt any pain. And he has holes in his body and shit. Yes. Like he's been shot. He's got like open wounds all over him. Not all over him. He's not as riddled as a lot of the other zombies are. So he hears a scream and he turns and sees Julie in the corner sobbing and unarmed. And M is going right for her. So R steps in and is like, nah, she's mine. Which pisses M off and he's about to kind of go at R and lunge at him. Until he gets shot by some other guy with an Uzi in the shoulder. And he's like, alright, turns around and just goes off to kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, we'll talk about this at home. So R goes to Julie and he decides that he is going to protect her. Even after she throws a knife and it lodges itself like what a half an inch into his frontal lobe or like into his skull and he says he can feel it like yeah like poking just barely at the frontal lobe and he just pulls it back out (laughs) jen i want you to know that lucy just laid down right next to me and she looks very cute (laughs) i just i just needed you to know that So R says her name, and at that point, she just kind of freezes up and has no idea what the fuck to do. Yeah. (laughs) What, would you? No. (laughs) Would you know what to do? If a zombie started talking to me, I'd just be like, "Ah, I don't like zombies. This is too much. Yeah. I don't don't agree with your lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't agree with your lifestyle. Like you're a homophobe. (laughs) At Pride. So he dips his hand into a wounded zombie, not a dead zombie, just mind a wounded you. one. So he just like has some wounded zombie nearby and just sticks his hand into their wound and pulls out their like rottingness. Uh-huh. He calls it black blood, but I it's it's really just rot. Rot inner rot. Yeah. <laughs> and he coats Julie in it. Oh. To mask her scent. Because the way zombies feel humans is they, like, can smell the electrical charge of their existence. The way, it's very hard to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where when you're reading it, it feels almost like they smell them the same way uh, heat-detecting goggles see people. What are those called? Infrared goggles. Infrared would goggles, see yeah. Um, so yeah, he manages to mask her spark and her scent using that. And she just gets taken back to the airport with them. Nobody notices. Yep. Which is crazy. Because, like, he, how much did he put on her? I know in the movie, he, likes forehead and then down the cheeks. And then he just, like, takes her back with them. But, like... The only thing I can think is... It's, like, only her face is showing and everything else... It's covered. It's thoroughly covered by some kind of, like, body armor or something. But even then, I mean, they can smell them through buildings. I feel like you would have to coat yeah. the entire body. I I also feel like there has to be a sense of, like... Once they've all eaten, they're just kind of like, I'm done. And yeah. they don't really, they don't really wonder that much about it. But nobody goes for Julie either. Yeah. Later. So I'm like, 
this is one part where I'm like, I think he just didn't feel the need to go in that in depth with it. So yeah. if you're like really into it, you're like, he's just like, guys, look, just let it go. I I do like to imagine if Isaac Marion is listening to this right now, because I should say I have spoken with him several times. Um, he's, you know, pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, I actually recently messaged him because I was padding out my collection of books and I was trying to see if there were any advanced reader copies of The Living, which is the third book in the series um, that existed. I didn't think there would be because he self-published that one. Uh, but and he messaged me back and he was like, I'm so sorry. Like the, there were only two ever made. There's one that I have when I was like, of course, that's yours. And then there's another one that was given to a producer from like back when we still thought like the movies were going to get made. And uh, there's none others that exist. And I was like, oh, I guess that's it then. <laughs> Thank you anyway, obviously. But like, I, I, uh, there is a part of me that is worried that he will listen. Not worried. I mean, we're obviously like, we love this book. So we're not like being critical of it or anything. But um, Just, I can I can imagine him hearing this part and being like, guys, shut the fuck up. <laughs> what? He listens? And then he just comments and he's like, guys, you didn't understand anything. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? Guys, this is just a book about zombies. Why are you you analyzing it so much? Can you imagine? Gilgamesh. I just like Gilgamesh. I would be humiliated. (laughs) Nine years of my life. (laughs) Oh. Oh my God. Anyway. So chapter three, R escorts Julie through the airport to the airplane where he lives, which is filled with random memorabilia he's collected over the years of living in it. Uh, He assures her he isn't going to eat her as best he can with his limited verbiage. You have to remember that every time we say that he's conveying something to someone else, he's like grunting and saying, no, eat and stuff like that. Um... He plays a Frank Sinatra record on his turntable while she regards him in complete disbelief. Has I mean, no idea what to make of him. If a zombie pulled you into a plane and turned on a Frank Sinatra record, yeah. You'd probably be a little uh, freaked out. Later, R messes with an old car in the parking garage that he admires but has no idea how to drive. He says like he's got the same like the the instinct to drive, but he like as for the mechanics, he doesn't get it. Which this brings me back to the conversation we had earlier about how they can't read and I feel like there's a lot of fine motor skills that have been lost. And like yeah. I know reading is not a fine motor skill, but like you understand what I mean. It's like they under, it's like he knows the overarching concepts of what hu, what yes. a human life was, but the minutia of it is lost. I also feel like while his brain has stayed like really well intact, there's probably most of the rest of his body does not function the way that it's supposed to, which would lead to him not being able to read because it doesn't matter how good your brain is if your eyes aren't functioning properly and sending the correct signals to your brain you're not going to be able to read and you're not going to like 
you know, if your hands and like you aren't able to like grip as well or have the same fluidity you would need when you drive, then you're not going to be able to drive a car. And so I feel like a huge part of all of this is R's brain is a lot stronger than the rest of him, which is good because I wouldn't want to live inside the mind of a zombie whose brain was shit and his body was great. I also wouldn't want to live in M's brain. I would not want to live in M's brain. (laughs) Isaac, you wrote a really gross man. (laughs) I mean, he did it well. R visits M in the women's restroom where he lives and spends most of his time watching softcore porn, which R insists is no longer needed or useful as the dead simply cannot fuck. They can't. They can't fuck. What a tragic existence to not be able to fuck. Okay. You know, I went in on this on Twilight and now I got to go in on this on Warm Bodies. If you're still able to move your muscles <laughs> and consume flesh, why can you not get a boner? Because they don't have blood running through their veins. But like, then how are they moving? Emmy, that's too much. You're Now you've taken it too far. This is the part where he tells you to shut up and just I know. read the book. I know, I'm just, I'm... <laughs> Look. The di- okay, the difference here is Isaac Marion is not obsessed with making the biology make sense the yeah. way. He's like, they're <laughs> zombies, guys. Of course they can't fuck. What are you asking me? The Stop! way Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> Stephanie Meyer tried to do weird yeah. shit. Stephanie Meyer just wrote it. and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote <laughs> all of it so many times to get it to make sense. And Isaac is like, it's a zombie. Yeah, that's why I'm like, fuck, it's a zombie. (laughs) I'm like, there are some logical, but it's like, it's a lot easier to just let this one go. Yeah. "Eh." Yeah, Who cares? (laughs) Oh, God. Um, So they share a brain like a teenager would share a joint, enjoying the visions that they get. Uh, It's not Perry's brain. They share a different brain. Um, Then R pulls out a piece of Perry's brain and has a bite. He enjoys a couple visions from Perry's past both involving Julie, before M interrupts him, demanding a bite. And R is like, no, fuck you, this is mine. He's very possessive over the brain of this man he's just murdered. And this whole thing is very similar to watching people do drugs with each other. Yeah, it is. M reached over for the pipe and R was like, no, fuck you. This is mine. This is my Kirby pipe. (laughs) Someone sent me a Kirby pipe. Well, like they linked me a Kirby pipe. I don't own the Kirby pipe as much as that would be dope as shit if I did. Well, that's rude. They should have sent it to you. I know. They should have bought it for me. It was like $60, but they should have bought it for me. What's $60 in this economy? What, what is $60 compared to a lifetime of enjoyment of me having a pipe that looks like Kirby sucking up a big ol' stick? A big ol' what? Stick. Just a stick. Stick. Not dick. No, not dick. I would never. I have some <laughs> class. <laughs> Please. <laughs> What that mouth do though, Kirby? What, what that mouth do? For anyone who missed it, uh, back in March, for my twenty sixth 
birthday. I had a Kirby-themed child's birthday party. Just because. <laughs> because I felt like it. So if Kirby comes up a lot, it's because he's been in the lexicon lately. I also played Kirby in the Forgotten Lands. I need to finish that game. I never finished it. June. It was fantastic. Oh, it's very good from what I played of it. Anyway, okay. anyway. Last part. <laughs> anyway, so R returns to the plane and tries to convey to Julie that he's sorry for killing Perry, but realizes she doesn't know it was him who killed Perry in the first place, given that it was very dark and it, it was very chaotic and nobody could see what was happening. Um, and it's important that she doesn't know. So put a pin in that one, too. You got you, I hope you've got your pin board out because you got to put some pins in your pin board. It's about to be sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) She demands to know why he saved her out of everyone else in the room. And of course, R is not able to verbalize why. Like, how do you, knowing that he can speak four syllables or less, how do you look at this woman and say, well, I ate the brains of your dead boyfriend, experienced all of his memories, formed compassion for you, and decided that you should survive? Well, I think the better part of this is even the fact that this is not even a moment where he has a feeling he needs to convey, but can't. It's, he doesn't want to tell her. Yeah. Once he realizes that she doesn't know that he was the one who killed Perry, it kind of becomes a sticking point. He doesn't want her to know because obviously she's not going to trust him if she finds out that he murdered her boyfriend. So, I mean, that's definitely going to come up later. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Who knows? I've only read this book a million times. (laughs) All right. Chapter three. Chapter Chapter four. Sorry. Numbers. Keep in mind, not actually chapter four. Chapter Chapter liver or something. (laughs) This is, I don't even know what this one is. I'm like, is this like a piece of a shoulder? Who knows? I think we got, this is a back view of a brain, I believe. Okay. Wait. Yes. This one is back view of the brain. (laughs) All right. So we are back in Perry's memories. Yeah. So the first, Perry is in an, an old truck with his dad driving away from the town they used to live in his dad says they're going somewhere safer well first he says safe and perry's like is anywhere safe and his dad's like we're going somewhere safer safer (laughs) um and then perry asks about his mom but his dad says that he killed her permanently um which stops her from returning as a zombie and this along with a couple other lines here and there is what clues you in that this isn't a matter of people who get bitten by a zombie and not consumed turn into a zombie it's anyone who dies and is not can does not have their brain destroyed turns into a zombie just dying yeah will result in you becoming a zombie no zombie contact necessary yes um so perry's upset but his dad explains that humans are nothing but flesh 
and the parts which matter will live on in their minds. How incredibly fucking relevant to the story we've read so far. Thanks, Perry's dad. Thanks, Mr. Kelvin. You stated the thesis. (laughs) (laughs) This has all just been an introductory paragraph, and Mr. Kelvin has just given us the thesis statement. Okay, that will have been edited out, but we did just have to pause so that Emmy could mute herself, lean back in her chair, and shout, Wife! Wait. You could hear me? No, I can. I could read your lips as you were screaming wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I figured out what you were saying, okay? You leaned back and you went, wife! And it's <laughs> like, what else could you possibly be shouting? I had to tell her there were room. packages downstairs. <laughs> of course. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so then we we jump out of this memory into another one where Perry is with Julie, salvaging in an abandoned hospital where they see a zombie wandering around below in the snow. And Julie begins to wonder what it's like in their minds. I wonder if this is something she'll ever get to learn about (laughs) in some way. I don't know. Uh, But they watch as it stumbles around aimlessly and then collapses. And this kind of strange second death bothers them. And so they're like, let's just leave. Yeah. Though we don't know if this is a second death for sure, given something that we learn next chapter. Yeah. Uh, But Uh, it's another example of a zombie just running out of gas and just like collapsing onto the ground. Ran out of gas. Yep. <laughs> so then we jump out of the memories, and it's another segment that's neither really Perry or R, and it's, it's a voice telling R, you need to stop. You need to put the brain away. Stop eating it. Come back to yourself. <sighs> and he just fails. Yeah. <laughs> Does he not do it. He can't stop eating it. Um <laughs> And he does say, we didn't mention earlier, but he says at one point that Perry's brain is particularly potent. Like the memories inside of that brain are stronger than any that he's had before, which is how all of this happens, right? Like, I don't think that this, like he literally was eating another person's brain with M and like not having this same, like really intense reaction to it so we know that like perry's brain is much more um has a lot more going on inside of it i mean his brain is full of julie who it's like julie is to r like the complete antithesis as to what r is and what he's been experiencing in his many years of undeath because she's so full of life she's so vibrant um, which we see more and more as chapters go on. And I think there's a reason. I think it's intentional. Oh, what? <laughs> what? Um, so chapter five, R's wife finds him the following morning and they quote unquote argue. 
i.e. R is, like, begging her to, like, say words or, like, show any hint of a personality and she spits at him in frustration because she doesn't have the same, like, emotive capabilities that he has. And so she just gets pissed at him and spit, literally spits at him. Um, she then takes him to where their kids are huddled in a gift shop eating less than fresh remains and R is like, fuck, I haven't been a very good dad. Um, so they take the kids to zombie school, quote unquote, which is basically just an arena where child zombies get to learn how to hunt humans. And the, like the macabre element here, I think the, the worst part of it is like, oh, you're teaching these child zombies how to hunt humans, right? Which like, I mean, they have to learn if they want to like participate, but they will always be children. Yeah. They never grow up. They will never age. So, like... This is not a Reynolds rap. Yes. Thing. There's not some special magic that turns them into adults. Pardon the interruption. I just need it known that until I was editing this episode right now, I did not understand Emmy's reference to Renesme from Breaking Dawn when she said, this is not Reynolds rap. And I feel very ashamed And I just needed you to know that I didn't react to it in the episode, not because I was trying to stay focused on the subject matter at hand. I just am stupid and did not understand the reference. Anyway, back to the show. Yeah, they like this isn't just teaching them now so that when they're adults, they'll know how to do it. This is teaching them now in the hopes that they don't just act as a burden on the rest of the zombie society because they will never age and they will need to fend for themselves despite the fact that they are still children um so a child zombie not one of ours dies in a fight with an old man which I just keep, I just keep child zombies in my closet you know yeah um which like it, uh, a child zombie dies in a fight with an old man which hardly seems to bother anyone aside from R who is like deeply disturbed by the sight of this child getting ripped apart by this old man. And I mean I would be too. It's pretty gross. Um so R returns to the plane to check on Julie. She's irritable with him at first, uh then demands to know how he knows her name, valid. Um, he goes to leave, but she stops him by asking for some food. She follows him off the plane when he leaves, and she pretends to be a zombie as they walk down the hallway. And at the comedy of this, R almost smiles. So I love this chapter, how it has the juxtaposition of R having an argument with his wife because she is incapable of having an ounce of life and personality and then at the end he goes back to julie who like has so much life that she even when she's pretending to be dead is like funny and you know entertaining to him it's it's just a beaut it's beautifully juxtaposed it's the difference between death and life honestly it's beautiful it's life beautiful. and death life, life and death life and death don't bring up that awful book i don't want to think about it ever again uh oh i also want to just throw in we've gotten little tidbits uh throughout about ours life kind of mm-hmm. um he thinks he traveled a lot uh because he has some vague impressions 
from being on the plane, the 747, of having flown a lot in his life. Kind of like I think when he gets in the car, where he has this vague impression that it should be right for him, but he doesn't quite get it. Yeah. He's uh, also, he's famously, like his outfit, he's wearing black pants, a gray shirt, and a red tie. Which, this is not included in the movie. I think he's wearing, like, black... I can literally look. I'm using my movie cover book. Um, he's wearing uh, jeans and Converse and a red hoodie. So, like, we've still got the red. Um, but he says that he thinks he must have been some kind of business person. Based on the way he's dressed and from his vague impression of his life. Yeah, and he doesn't... I mean, we, do, we know he doesn't know anything else. But they also don't know how much time has passed. They have no concept oh yeah time so he's like i don't know if i've been dead for months weeks years decades yeah no idea um you get a hint of like how long the plague like the the apocalypse like the zombie apocalypse basically has been going on based on perry's memories right um we don't know quite how old he is yet i think julie talks about it in the upcoming chapters but like we know that he was not he's like about the same age as julie and julie's like an older teenager and so like maybe 19 or 20 and when he was nine things were like starting to pick up far away from where he lived so like it's been about 10 years since the apocalypse happened we'll say but we don't know how much of that time R has been a zombie? How much of that time anyone has been a zombie? Because they have no memories. So, and time has, like, doesn't, pa- like, they don't really recognize the passage of time. Earlier when R was talking about wanting to go out and feed again, he was like, I think it's been three days. But I can't be sure. Because <laughs> they don't really sleep. A lot. And if you aren't, like, trying to look and keep track of the sun... Yes, exactly. So, chapter six. R takes Julie around the food court in search of anything that might have survived the rolling power outages and the process of time. Uh, Julie makes quips, which is kind of amazing considering she is in a airport full of zombies that want to eat her. Yeah, she's so quippy. She's sassy. Uh, she's sassy. So they find a, somehow they find a freezer that appears to have never thawed, full of in-flight meals, and Julie takes some pad thai, which R knows she likes, based on memories from Perry. Oh, yeah. Uh, She tries to ask R about when he died, but he can't tell her anything because he doesn't understand the passage of time. Yeah. Um... She also refers to him as a corpse, which he lets slide, despite this being quite offensive to the dead. Yeah. Um, you, you have to also know that, like, R refers to zombies as the dead. Um, and then there's, like, he uses such... I'll have to remember to make a note of it the next time we read, because he, he calls the zombies the dead, but then, like, he talks about... Full, oh, he says full death when he's talking about the zombies who have actually died. Or, and he'll, I, it's, they're fun little phrases that they've had to come up with because, I mean, 
You don't just say zombie in a zombie book. That'd be that, silly. That would be goofy. <laughs> <laughs> goofy goober. So, shiver, yeah, shiver, so he gets her a beer. And I'm just like, man, is that beer going to be drinkable? I don't, I, I don't, don't know. If- I know that wine lasts a really long time. I do not know how long beer lasts. Do you want me to phone my dad? No. no I can phone okay. my dad. I know that he could tell us. He but could. I don't think that's necessary. Okay. Um, Julie says she's more of a wine girl. Actually. Yeah. Um, she tries to get his name, but we end up with just R still. Um so Julie offers him the beer, and oddly enough, it seems to have an effect on him. He feels the buzzing. And that should not be happening, because since dying, nothing has any effect on him that once did. So he thinks maybe it's psychosomatic, or maybe it's something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Julie finally demands to know why he's keeping her around he's like i'm trying to keep you safe and she's like bullshit and he kind of has to try and explain awkwardly by touching his heart and then touching her heart and she's like yes are you fucking kidding me he full-on tarzans it he's he's like you jane me tarzan phil collins comes in starts (laughs) Um, so yeah, she's understandably freaked out by this zombie that is apparently in love with her. Um, and R explains that he can't take her away yet without arousing suspicion because everyone thinks she's a new convert. So they have to wait around until everyone else kind of just forgets that he brought her back. Because when he brought her back, it was kind of a point that he made that Converts are extremely uncommon outside of a zombie getting killed in the process of eating someone. So making an intentional convert the way that he seemed to do with Julie is really weird. And nobody under would understand how he did it. Yeah. Um, so Julie agrees to stay and ours... Like, I'll just entertain you until you can leave. And so they begin to listen to music and discuss Lennon and McCartney. At which point, R makes a joke. (laughs) R makes a joke! He's so funny! Ha ha! Hold on, let me me find the joke. I'll find it. It's the kukukashu. Yeah. The Lennon Uh, line. So he thought it was meaningless. Uh, sorry, you know, John Lennon hated this song and it's uh, Hello Goodbye, by the way. Uh, Julie says as it plays, speaking in my direction, but not really addressing me. He thought it was meaningless gibberish. Funny for coming from the guy who wrote, I am the walrus. And then R says, Goo goo, kajoob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good for him. He's so he's, be, he's doing his best. He'll be on a stage in a club at any time now. He's he's living his best on life. Absolutely. So watching Julie move to the music, R begins to feel signs of life in his body again. 
things that he thought were gone and he can only guess are figments of his imagination. Once again, assuming that his feelings are psychosomatic, which he will do for a long time. Yeah. So strap in. (laughs) And this, I'm going to come back to chapter one when he was having his bad episode and everything about being sensitive is I think that so so he talks about how some zombies fall apart very quickly Mm -hmm. and how some zombies fall apart very slowly making it even harder to tell any kind of timeline um Clearly, something about his feelings is what's driving him to regain aspects of humanity, of life, since he does specify that they do not like, he does not like being referred to as not human. He's just a dead human. Yeah. Um, I think the sensitivity is a result of having a strong desire. To be alive. Yes. Because all the zombies, obviously, that go and hunt are going to have a stronger than usual desire. The ones that don't stay back and wait for the leftovers to be brought. Um, and one of the big things is to get to experience the memories of people. So... I think that he is, it's how to, It's like, imagine if you could have a feeling, but you could only have that feeling by taking that feeling from somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so you're so determined to experience it, you will allow yourself to suffer the guilt of experiencing it. Yeah. Just to do it. Are has both a very strong sense of self and a very strong sense of self-preservation. And I feel like that is what others might consider a weakness, like just in the realm of like him being extra sensitive, but what makes him, what sets him apart and makes him in theory stronger than other zombies. If you don't know the, the fucking plot of this book, the whole plot is that he's slowly turning human again, right? Because of his, because of love. Like that's the whole plot of the book. So like his self-preservation and his desperate desire to cling to life, him having that super strong inner world is what is allowing him to go on while others are falling apart you know and i think that probably has a a broader commentary you know in that the people in real life who like really focus on themselves and having a very strong sense of who they are and what their place is in the world generally are happier as people and they succeed more you know or they're happier with the success that they have you know well i think it's look at animals yes I'm looking at one right now. Oh my god. Jen, this is another Lucy mention. You're welcome. We obviously recognize certain levels of consciousness as we perceive it uh, in other animals. Yes. And 
some animals we see obviously feel guilt for things they do to hurt others like Mm -hmm. them or even other species. Yeah. I mean, have you ever seen the look on a dog's face when they knock over a trash can? (laughs) They look so sad. They're like, oh, shit. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. But some animals don't. Mm -hmm. Some don't have that. And there seems to be a very strong connection and things that are alive between having a concept of who you are and being able to empathize with others. Yes. You have to know that you are and what you are really to be able to understand what something else is. Oh yeah. And so when you lose sight and I, I, this is getting down into the very symbolic parts of the book, but The whole thing is humanity has fallen so far from being alive in this time because we're so focused on all the shit that we have to do and the rat race, as it's called, that we don't have time to process our own existence and really contemplate it. And it makes us less human. Yeah. But ours retained that. Even in a world where he had once apparently lost it and turned into a zombie. Yeah. He even, like, I mean, think about it in a sense of, like, maintaining your individualism in a world where you are basically just a cog in a machine, you know? R is a cog in the undead machine, but he still maintains who he is and his, you know, his sense of self-preservation. And, like... I know we've already had the conversation about individualism versus collectivism on this show. So like, don't come at us. We understand the the importance of collectivism and working together as a society, but that's not what this book is about. Yeah, no. So yeah, to, (laughs) to preface any future talks of individualism, collectivism is extremely important. You have to work with other people. You have to care about other people. Absolutely. It's just that... Having a strong sense of self and your own desires and your own yeah. feelings is very important to yes. functioning within this, that. We're talking about individualism on a personal level rather than on a societal level, okay? Yes. Individualism is important. Con- like Continuing to have your sense of self, knowing who you are, and recognizing the good and the bad parts of you is very important for your survival. So continue Especially to do because that. Oftentimes when you lose that sense of self, you are willing to do really bad things to society. Mm-hmm. Or to yourself. Or to yourself. So or it's very important. you just give up on yourself because what's the point of going on if you don't really have a sense of who you are? Anyway. <laughs> Anyways. Chapter seven. That's your chapter. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) We've fallen back into our old ways. Uh, So Julie gives R a driving lesson in that car of his, but he's pretty much the worst student driver in history. Uh, His kids are in the back seat and keep trying to eat Julie. But they're I fucking little. love this. But they're little, so it's easy to keep them at bay. They literally like keep lurching forward and trying to snap at her, and R just keeps swatting them like they're cats. He's like, down! No! 
And Julie's just like, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> uh, while they're driving, uh, they spot R's wife with another man. Julie asks if it bothers R, and he explains he wants it to, but his heart is dead, so he doesn't really care. Julie tells R about a time when Perry cheated on her, and she felt so strongly that she wished she didn't have to feel it at all. Which, God, I just... This whole book is just emotions, right? Yeah. It's just, it's no thoughts, just vibes. Like, well, lots of thoughts, but mostly vibes. It's just feeling, it's just experiencing, right? And like, we've all had that pain. Oh, yes. We've all experienced, and it doesn't have to necessarily be because a partner cheated on you. It's just any, like, vile pain that you felt so deeply inside of you that you wished you could shut your emotions off altogether. And, um, I, it's like, it's actually, I love hearing about people's painful stories because it tells you a lot about them as a person and like the way that they approach certain experiences in their life. Because she talks about that as being like the most painful thing she's ever experienced. We find out later that something I would consider to be much worse happens to her at some point in her life, but she doesn't regard it with the same level of pain and remorse as she does when Perry cheated on her. Crazy. But like, not, I'm not criticizing her. It's just like, it tells you exactly how those things affected her at that point in her life. Yeah. And uh, I think the interesting thing is she wants R to be a, I don't think she realizes that the wife thing it's not like that's our's wife from when he was alive it's yeah. just a woman he got paired with because and i think that like we're looking at it, we're like oh ha 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 they're doing like these rituals that are yeah. similar to people worshiping now and getting married now and it's all meaningless but it's like or maybe it's that we're already at that point where so many people just do it because they're supposed to do it and people yeah. tell them to do it. R went along it, with the marriage despite like not really knowing this woman, experiencing a fleeting moment of happiness with her, and then was basically just like, okay, we're bound together now. And how often do you hear that? Oh, When we're so not zombies. Often. And it's, that's kind of the point is like, it's the same thing they're doing yeah. as zombies. It's chasing that same concept of humanity. Yeah. Here's the part, by the way. Um, is that your wife? Julie asks again more forcefully. I nod. Who's that guy she's with? I shrug. He shrugs a lot. It's a thing. Um, she hates it. She hates it. It's really funny. Is she cheating on you or something? I shrug. This doesn't bother you? I shrug. Stop shrugging, you asshole. I know you can talk. Say something. <laughs> I think for a minute. Watching my wife fade into the distance, I put a hand on my heart. Dead. I wave a hand toward my wife. Dead. My eyes drift toward the sky and lose their focus. Want it to hurt, but doesn't. Like, I, I just, I feel like if you haven't read it, I feel like I just, I, re we can't reiterate enough the broken way in which R communicates because like, it's like, it's in a way that like, it makes sense. Like he says, I want it to hurt, but it doesn't. Right. 
but it's still so limited but he finds a way of communicating his thoughts in so few words why use big word when small small word do trick trick. (laughs) um back in the plane julie waxes poetic about the importance of music then asks r about who he killed when he saved her in the city he doesn't answer she then says she doesn't blame whatever zombie killed perry and explains that Perry was deeply depressed and talked about dying all the time, almost like he wanted it to happen. She explains she's also depressed, but she chooses to keep living. She hurts herself in other ways, like self-harm, drugs, and drinking, all as a means of drowning out all the bad feelings. R plays Julia's song as a way of telling her he likes her and hopes she never changes. As she questions what exactly R is, he leaves the plane. And what a remarkable illustration of the different ways in which people experience depression as a sickness, not just like as a feeling. Because Perry drowned in the depression. He, it consumed him to the point where he wasn't fighting it anymore. But Julie does other things as a means of having feeling. She cuts herself. She smokes weed. She drinks. She, you know, acts dangerously as a means of still experiencing what it means to be alive. She sells her body sexually. Yes. She has um, acted as an escort where she, you know, in the stadium where she lives. And she does whatever she can to retain her life. And in a way, in a way, I find that that, means that she has much more in common with R than she had with Perry because she has that same desperation. She's clinging on to things the same way that he does. Not the same exact way, but he's clinging and she is also clinging. With the same concept of by whatever means necessary. Exactly. She's willing to do horrible things to herself to still feel alive while R is willing to do horrible things to other people in order to still feel alive. Which, you know, I don't know what that says about morality. <laughs> but um, it does say a lot about the way that these different characters, because, like, everything in this book is metaphorical. There's no way around it. But, like, you're literally looking at three different people who are experiencing what we would classify as depression and mental illness. And they're all approaching it in different ways. R lashes out at other people. Julie lashes out at herself. And Perry does nothing. He just shuts down. She talks at length throughout the book about the way that he approached things. And the way that he seemed to no longer care about whether he lived or died. And in this chapter particularly, she kind of says that it feels like he was waiting. Like, if he's dead now, that means that he's probably better off. Um, anyway, (laughs) so uh, there's not a lot of jokes so far with this episode. We gotta, we gotta spice things up. Um, so R sleeps for a while that night, explaining that zombies only sleep when they really need to recharge rather than sleeping nightly. He falls asleep because he catches his wife and her new boyfriend haphazardly hooking up, basically just like naked and walking into each other over and over again like they can't like i said like we talked about zombies cannot fuck 
So they're not really doing anything. They're just like naked and like, and that's it. It's not, there's nothing else that they can really do to feel any kind of stimulation. Um, and it metaphorically knocks him out. He literally just kind of collapses on the floor in, in the airport because that's kind of the way that they fall asleep most of the time. When he wakes up only a few hours later, he eats the last bite of Perry's brain. He sees flashes of Perry's birth, his death, and one last glimpse at his life with Julie. During the vision, Perry speaks to R, implying that he doesn't have to stay dead forever. And this is what I meant earlier when I said, it seems intentional. Yeah. Because at one point, Julie's like, why do you guys eat brains? Is it because you get to experience people's lives? Because we have a theory that that's why you do it. And, and that theory is true. Yes. And so it seems very much like with the hint earlier where Perry's talking about his brain hurting in one of the memories. But it's because he's literally having his brain eaten at yes. that moment. Um, that Perry knew what would happen and planned for it and wanted it. Mm -hmm. He wanted to have his brain consumed, hoping that that was really what happened and that he would be able to get these thoughts to somebody. Yes. He was not experiencing life anymore. So the only way for that life to be experienced was through someone else. And this, like, this part, if we continue the string on the metaphor for depression... Perry looking at R and saying, you don't have to be dead. Like, you do not have to always be what you are right now is so beautiful in it being juxtaposed as someone who gave up on themselves, telling someone else that you don't have to give up on yourself. There is still time to save you. It's literally like the dead coming back to life. To stop somebody from killing themselves. Yes, essentially. <laughs> like, can you imagine, like, getting a note from, a from like, a long-lost loved one that, like, saves your life? That's kind of how I imagine this. Um, so, <laughs> when R, like, collapses on the floor, he says, uh, after seeing his wife cheating on him, he says, this was the final weight that broke my mind's kneecaps. And he just falls on the floor. And I just really liked that line. Or why did you put kneecaps on your brain? Or <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck was you thinking? So um, R then falls back asleep after his, sa his snack and resolves that he doesn't want to die, doesn't want to di disappear into nothingness, but in fact wants to live. Which, continuing our metaphor, is if we look at this as like him deciding that he doesn't want to just be depressed and doesn't want to just wait for death that like now he's like he's formally agreeing to transitioning back into being alive he's he wants to live he wants to it's no longer just like a base instinct to continue being alive that he retained from his human life he now has the resolve that he wants to continue living which is also an interesting part of the metaphor for depression because you can't fix depression simply by wanting to be better. 
Yes. That's not how depression works. But wanting to be better is a critical part of fixing it. You cannot get better if you do not want to get better. There is this line from the book, and I have to I have to find it. I have to read it. I don't remember what part it's from, but it like really illustrates this part really, really well. Wanting change is step one, but step two is taking it. And I love I love that line. I mean, I love every line of this book. There's so many lines when taken out of context are still just like so beautiful. Um, and I'm sure I'll like write down and take notes of those lines as we go on. But it's like he's as long as he's been conscious, he's wanted more. His airplane is full of memorabilia that marks what it means to be alive. You know, he's got snow globes, he's got records, he's got books, he's got posters, everything all over the place that's marking the human experience of being alive and going out and seeing and doing things. But he was play acting. He wasn't actually living. But now that he knows this girl who is so full of life and he's experienced the life of someone who had given up on themselves, he has chosen that he wants to get better and to actually be fully alive. Um, but yeah, that is the end of what we have read so far, which is about 64 pages, give or take. Do you think that was a good amount or should we do less next time? I think that was a good amount. Okay. I feel like if we do, like, it's a long episode, but if we do less, we're going to end up with a lot of episodes. <laughs> that is a good point. Let me find... And a lot of this is establishing the yes. concepts, so we can... We won't need to reestablish them. <laughs> yes. Um, so there is a break at page 119. There's a chapter break at page 119. Perfect. So we will read to page... We'll read through page 118 for next week. I'm very excited. Uh, it's actually been many months, <laughs> many months since I read the first 64 pages because we planned to do this months ago and then it like, it really got away from us. Uh, but I, Emmy read it yesterday, so. <laughs> very fresh for me. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I've read it so many times. So, I mean, you know, um, but I'm very excited to continue. And I, I loved I loved this flow. I love talking about this book. It feels great to be discussing a book that like feels really meaningful and where you just are smiling and happy as you read it. Well, not maybe not like joyously happy. <laughs> it's a it's lot nice of to read a book that you enjoy because it's actually a well-written book. Yes. You walk away <laughs> from the book like happy that you read it. Not just happy because you got to have a funny, stupid conversation about it. Like, when we finished Twilight, I was like, I'm glad we read those books. That was really funny. <laughs> I wasn't like, I'm glad we read those books. They were good. <laughs> I gained something from these books. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're following along, we will read through page 118 for next week. Um, and I say next week. Do we want to do weekly episodes or would we like to do bi-weekly episodes? I could do weekly. Okay, then let's go for it. We're going to do weekly episodes. Probably, I, I mean, we're recording this on a Friday. Probably give us ourselves like a week. Do you want to give ourselves like a week buffer? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Well, we will be back next week with the next uh, series of chapters. 
before we go, it's important to my mental health that we give a shout out to Robin on Twitter. Um, they have been a longtime listener of ours. They made a comment the other day, you know, what do I have to do to get a shout out? Um, this is what you have to do is, is say that you want a shout out on the show because I will shout out anyone. I don't care. Tweet at me. At, I married one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you tweeted us enough, maybe you could marry one of us. Well, we're both married now. So I don't know how well that's going to go. But, you know, eventually, maybe polyamory will be more uh, accessible and we can all just be married together. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at LipmastersPod. <laughs> Emmy is at M of many names. I'm at Sarah S. Wilton. Uh, shoot us an email over at LiteraryMastersPod at gmail.com. Hit us with a coffee over at ko-fi.com slash LitmastersPod. I'm always on the internet. I'm always online and my DMs are open. Our DMs are open. Shoot us a message. We always want to hear from you. And we say, we like, when we're actually actively posting episodes, we are super active on Twitter as well. So like, we love to hear anyone reacting to anything we've said, whether it's negatively or positively. We want to hear- yeah, and we're going to try not to maximum ride ourselves again. <laughs> yes, we uh, will not be maximum riding ourselves again. After this book, we're going to be reading House of Night, correct? Yep. Which are shorter books, and I will not lie, I cheated and I read a little bit of the first book, and I was like, nope, this is a book. This is a real book. This is, <laughs> this is, not, just, this is not just a series of sentences <laughs> that were put together. <laughs> There is logical progression yes. and plot. <laughs> um, we will probably not be reading all like 13, 15 books in that series, but you know, we'll see where it takes us. And then I think at some point we're going to read Divergent and fucking who knows where that's going to take us. <laughs> we're going to diverge for sure. <laughs> anyway, we will see you next week. Uh, if you don't have any more thoughts, I don't have any more thoughts. I want to crack our ribs open no. and migrate our hearts and merge them. Goodbye.